This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also a billion moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. So Curtis, you teach business owners and leaders how to decode their finances and live more intentionally. I love the second part. We'll talk more about that. But yeah. let's start with this. So you graduated in 2008, the year of crash. Do you think graduating during a crash has changed how you think about money? You know, that's that's a very good question. I'm, you know, I'm very lucky in that when I came out, I was um I was in I'm in Oklahoma and so we were a little bit insulated from that crash. We've experienced crashes before. Um, but we didn't experience the crash as far as the housing market. So mm. I was fortunate in that. But as I look back, I do see that it did in a little few ways limit some career opportunities. Um, you know, it just kind of became a, you know, just get a job where you can get a job, you know, versus, you know, trying to look for the best thing out there. So I think it did. But, you know, you know, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot out there and and you kind of make your own way. And, and I think I've, I've, figured that out because I started out in some really big companies and I realized pretty quickly that I just did not like doing that. And so then through the years, I found a niche in small to medium businesses and really been able to help that. So, you know, in some ways, uh, it helped me see what I wouldn't like. And then I was able to find later on what I actually did like. So. Yeah, definitely. Because there are some people who are just throwing this out that, you know, people who have graduated during these, let's say, good times, they have become soft because they're easily getting yeah. the big pay. They're easily getting a good job, work from home, stuff like that. But people who graduated during the crash, they are like very hard. They understand that you have to work hard and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see the how how your personality towards work changes uh, based on the situation that you get into work or get into this adult life sort of. For sure. For sure. And, and you know, you know, it's being older, it's easy to say, oh, these people are soft because they didn't go through what we went through, you know, <laughs> exactly. but uh, we all have our different experiences. And I think it's fun to be able to look and see uh, and learn from other people's experiences. And I think in the long term, if you're learning from each different experience, I like to think I'm pretty adaptable. And when you learn from other people, you become even more adaptable. And then it's really whatever happens, you're in a good position, right? Because you can make it work. And so um, I think that's the one concern with the, you know, with people now is that they may not be as adaptable because they've never had to work in an office, but then they're mm. also more adaptable because they dealt with the pandemic. So, you know, right. you could go either way with it, but um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about perspective. So definitely. Now you taught Dave Ramsey classes and that helped you become better personal finance. How did that happen? How did you, how were you introduced to Dave Ramsey? How were you introduced to this classes? How did you get into that? And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that's, that was a fun, that was a fun time, but, uh, it didn't take me very long to realize that that wasn't what I wanted to keep doing. So I was, I was introduced to Dave Ramsey because I grew up in a good family. I had a lot of really good experience. Um, as far as my parents were very good with money. And so I went to college and, and didn't really have to worry about a whole lot because we had, it's a different story, but we had some money from a car accident we'd been in. And so we, I didn't have to pay for college. I was able to use the money from that. And so I came out and 
I was an accounting major. And so I should know everything about money. I should know like all these concepts and I did know them, but because I never had to think about it before, it was kind of a rude awakening getting into the business world. And so within a couple of years, I realized like I was making good money, but I was just having fun. And I realized like, you know, I know I'm supposed to be saving or investing, you know, 15 to 20% was my goal. But then I look and I'm not doing it. And then I had to reflect personally, like, what does that say, you know, about me? Cause I know all the right things. And so it was through that journey that, um, I got exposed to Dave Ramsey. And then as I, people saw just kind of the way I was going about, I kept getting questions. Um, and then I, I'm a member of a church where, um, I, I had really helped a few people out of situations that were a little bit difficult and I got asked, you know, to lead this class. And so I did that for two years. Um, but then I realized, you know, pretty quickly that while Dave is great for a certain level there, he's great for the people that are in trouble that don't have any knowledge really at that starting level. But once you get past that, um, Dave can be really restricting because, you know, if the stuff, some stuff may not logically make sense to you, Dave is not even going to listen to you, right? He's just going to tell you to go bug off and, you know, do something else. And so I wasn't really agreeing with that style and I liked exploring the other options out there. So I realized after a period of time that those people weren't the people that I was passionate about teaching and helping um, and that I enjoyed having those deeper conversations. And so it was great because it gave me a good foundation and it helped me identify what I didn't like about his style. But then in turn, that kind of shaped uh, the way I moved forward. Um, and the approach that I take is a little bit different because I'm not really honestly going to tell someone what to do. I'm about giving someone the options, letting them know what's out there and then choose for themselves. Very interesting because right now I'm thinking about two things. Number one is there's a concept about like, you know, uh, let's say Gary Vee. So when people first get introduced to Gary Vee, they are listening to him. He's talking about hustle, about motivation, about creating content. And right now he's talking all about NFTs. But there's a time when you graduate from a content creator and then you go to the next one. Then you go to the next one. Uh, that's one thing that I'm thinking about. Like definitely personal finance is a thing where once you understand the basic fundamentals, then you graduate from that. So you don't have to keep listening to Dave Ramsey. You, now you understand that, hey, save money, do this, do that. That's all. But you also mentioned about some not so good advice. So what are some not so good advice of Dave, Dave Ramsey that you were not aligned with? Yeah. So one of his piece, and I, it's not necessarily that it's bad advice, but it's the way he applies it to everyone is just the piece of credit cards. That's one that's well known. He says, mm -hmm. cut up your credit cards. You should never use a credit card. And, and his argument is kind of a logical fallacy of, you know, I, that no one's ever become rich from credit card rewards. Well, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't, that doesn't help. That's not helpful for someone who spends money on a regular basis on a credit card. You know, you can get four or five hundred, a thousand dollars, depending on your spending level, in cash back in a year, and that means a lot for someone that's making less than a hundred thousand. But there's the flip side of that: is you have to understand how you spend on credit cards, and I think that's what most people don't do: is they just spend mindlessly on it. So he's right in one way in that we spend mindlessly. But he's wrong in that, you know, just kind of the stark chance, you know, stance he takes on it. And um, so I was a little bit uncomfortable with that because I wasn't going to get rid of my credit cards. I'd never had a, a problem with spending on credit cards. So why would I get rid of it when I can get free trips? Like we just took a trip and I got, you know, free nice. flights and everything <laughs> else because of all of our credit card points. And so the rule that I put in for myself and what I suggested to people was that 
if you've never had a late fee, if you've never had a problem with buying something that you've regretted, that you've um, out of impulse, that you're okay to keep the credit card. But I viewed it in, a, in some ways like an alcoholic, that if you've gotten that late fee because you've overspent and you've not been able to make that payment, that shows that you lack the control at that moment to have it. So you need to separate yourself from it. So in that situation, I think it's a, a good piece of advice. Um, but then as you, as you think further down the line, it's we need to be intentional about the way that we're spending and going about our business. And so versus worrying about the credit cards, let's worry about how we're making buying decisions. And uh, hmm. there's a rule that I didn't come up with the rule. I don't remember where I found it. Um, but they talk about like the 24 hour rule. Like if you're going to buy something, right. wait 24 yeah. hours before there. And so that's a beautiful rule to help overcome some of those impulses, some of those problems with credit cards um, that are kind of a workaround to having to get rid of those when in today's world, the convenience is there. Like just, it's just so easy to use a credit card. So that's one example. Um, he gives, he gives some others as far as investing advice. He talks about uh, you need to be in mutual funds, which is, you know, advice that was great 25 years ago, 30 years ago, but he specifically said not to vest, invest in ETFs and index funds, which is just bogus. It's um, self-serving because he has people that, that he recommends for investments that, you know, do mutual funds. So he's locking in his uh, return, you could say. And so there's just some advice. Um, th those are just two examples um, that are kind of the ones that kind of, you know, get me worked up the most, you could say. So. Right. The credit card things, uh, the, that particular aspect is definitely confusing because there was a time when I started making money and I was trying to think more about it. That, okay, what should I do? Should I cut my credit card or should I uh, keep it? Because, yeah, it helps you build a credit score. But I think that particular aspect makes sense that because there are rewards associated to it, they make you spend more than what you would have spent if you didn't have the card. So I agree with that. And for that reason, yes, as you mentioned, you have to be more intentional about the buying decision. I remember like when I had to buy this AirPods, uh, I waited a lot. Because I really wanted to know that, is that a, really a pain point for me? And then I realized that, yeah, it makes me do my podcast better. I don't have to worry about these wires hanging all around. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel better when I'm listening to audiobooks as I wake up in the morning. So yeah, like I gave me a lot of reasons. I gave myself a lot of reasons why I need this. And yeah, that's how I made this decision. So it's pretty cool. Now, let's talk about this. So the importance of business finance for everyone. You were really focused on helping business owners and leaders. So what is the importance of that? Yeah, so so I look at it in two different ways. There's two different parties anytime that you're talking about financials in a business, right? You have the business owner who's the person who day in, day out lives and breathe it. And I've worked as a CFO in small businesses for 10 plus years. So I've probably worked with 15 to 20 small business owners on a day-to-day -day basis, like helping them understand their financial statements. But as I've created and um, really started writing, I really started reflecting on this idea of how it matters for everyone. And I'll give you I'll give you an example of of how this is, and this is just one example. But I think you can you can look at almost any job in an organization and see how it matters. So as a as a salesperson, you've seen, and I think I'm sure everyone has heard a story of a salesperson that was making a lot of money, but then the ownership got frustrated or you know whatever because they were making too much in commission, and so those commissions now get pulled back. Well, what you see a lot of times is you know, it's easy to vilify the business owner for that. But if you understand your bottom line impact of what those sales commissions are having and the effect that it can have on the business, you could go about your job better. Because uh, if you're driven by a full commission and it's not based off of margins, right? It's just based off of top line. I know there's a lot of different structures, but 
people were driving down the cost of that product because they knew they got a sales commission. So then over time, that could result in that business owner pulling back. And so I think what you, lot of, you see a lot of times is you see people are thinking specifically just about them and their situation. And if you can zoom out, it's not that you're trying to do the business owner a favor, but it helps you be persuasive in how you approach the business owner in structuring your compensation and structuring a raise and structuring bonuses. Uh, but then also, if you can run a department really well, and if you can focus on those big pictures, especially in a big organization, you're going to get those promotion opportunities before other people will. And so, you know, there's a lot of different directions we could go with that. But the reality is, is we should all be working towards the same thing. And so I think it can get misconstrued that me saying that or a business owner saying that is them looking out for them. But if you're thinking long term, it's you looking out for you as well. And it's you being your advocate. And if you don't understand the bottom line effect, you can't properly be your advocate because that's the way the business owner is thinking. So you need to be able to speak in that language, especially when we're talking about a smaller business, uh, you know, versus a Fortune 500 company. So, so in this in this example that you gave, what would be, what would be the right thing to do? Yeah. So as a so as a um, sales team you can see sales teams driving really, really hard, right? And mm. they'll drive really, really hard on um, promotions, on whatever it is to where that's going to ultimately have an impact on the bottom line. So as a sales team, it wouldn't be saying, let's cut our commissions. It's let's think about creating some guidelines of if we get over a certain amount or if we reduce the price by a certain amount, there's some triggers that fire that cause those commissions to be dropped. And you want to, and honestly, this is just, this is just my opinion on this, but you can also say, instead of doing a sales commission on every sale, let's do a bonus structure. So let's do a sales commission. That's a lower commission. But then if we reach certain targets down the line, we get a certain bonus structure. So what that does is it aligns more closely aligns what you are with the business owner, because if you reach certain like margin metrics or certain top line metrics or whatever that looks like, however you come to an agreement, then that's benefiting the business owner and it's benefiting the sales team. And so it's looking for those mutually beneficial things and trying to make them work. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think designing commission structure makes is very difficult, especially when yes. you think in the long term. And for that reason, I believe a lot of companies, what they do is they do based on, they do a very short term. Whenever they get into a contract, they get into a short term contract that, hey, uh, let's not say that this commission structure is going to work for two years. Let's say it's only going to work for next six months. And then we'll change it based on the situation of the company. Because yes, yeah, sometimes if you have a salesperson who is just exceeding targets, uh, it might, it's good for your business, but it also somewhere might hurt your finances. Yeah. Well, and, and it's really about if, if you don't have the same aligned goal, if the salesperson's goal is to drive their commission up and then the owner's goal is to drive margins up, those are always gonna be pushing against each other. And so you need to find ways to help those work together. And it's not an easy answer. There's so many different types of companies and it's gonna look, um, it's gonna look different in every company. And it isn't that there's a certain structure that I think would work, but there's a way that the salesperson approaches it. There's a way that the general accounting person promotes it. There's a way that, you know, the, the administrative person talks about their job, that they're changing their perspective. And I'm really a big believer in everyone should act as an owner. I've, you know, outside of just my consulting, I've never been a business owner, right? But every job that I've been in, I've thought like an owner because I know that if I can align my goals with them, 
And if I can show them that I'm bringing value to them in the long-term health of the business, that that is going to, that's going to work out in the long run. Now, some people may argue, well, you have business owners or you have people that are just ruthless. You know what? And if they don't like that I'm doing that, or if they don't like the way I'm approaching it, honestly, that's just a signal to me that there's someone else out there that will be that way. And so I think we look at jobs like in a scarcity mindset is we just try and hold on to what we got because we think, well, if I lose, you know, um, whereas no one should be in a job where they're, you know, someone's not treating them well, where their boss and their uh, interests are not aligned. And if you're in that position, um, let's, let's try and jump around. Like, jumping around a job these days is not seen as a bad thing like it used to be. So let's get rid of that old mentality of we can't leave this job and let's go and try and find an arrangement that works better for us. So Definitely. The jumping around aspect, we have seen that a lot happening during the pandemic. People are, yeah. uh, it's crazy how many jumps are happening, how people are just quitting their job and starting a startup. Like our Twitter is full of uh, those bootstrap startups right now. But with regards to what you said, I'm curious. So what are the sort of problems you are helping your clients solve? If you can give a story of what problems have you helped them solve? Yeah. So I'm specifically focused right now is like, there's so many business owners that do not understand financial statements and financial reporting. And I'll give mm. you an example that I ran into is there was a company that, that I engaged with that I started talking to them and they, they basically told me, well, we have it all under control. We're, um, we know we're handwriting all these checks. We know what checks are coming in and going each week. We know where our money's going. We're making really good profits, which they were. So it really kind of covered up some of the issues. But as we got into it, what I realized is they were running a financial statement and income and a balance sheet every single week. And they were not paying attention to the fact that, you know, they invoiced once a month. So that meant that they had all sorts of cash fluctuations throughout. So they'd run it one week and it would show huge losses. They'd run it the next week and it'd show a huge profit because all these deposits had come in. And so they were running it on a schedule that didn't align with reporting. And what that also meant is that transactions weren't in the system, uh, you know, deposits weren't received, uh, checks weren't cashed. Like if you had credit cards, those credit card transactions weren't recorded. And so if you're missing transactions, if you're missing data, if you're not reviewing the data, then that report means nothing. But they felt right. like they were doing something good, right? They felt like they were really, really on top of it. And I, I applaud them because they were trying to be on top of it. They just didn't understand that if you run the report in that manner, you're not actually getting actionable information. You're, you're reacting to bad information, which is then going to lead to bad decisions. So my goal is to help them better understand the financial statement and then translate that into metrics. Um, and, and you can call it like a dashboard or a weekly report or whatever you want to call it that they can then create a rhythm of reporting that works with their business that is um, low effort and then can help them and ultimately help them make better strategic decisions. And so when I'm talking to people, I'm helping them understand the financial statement, clean up their financial statement, and then do consulting on the side of helping them figuring out their reporting um, schedule and figuring out, I ultimately like to get people on a weekly uh, rhythm but that weekly rhythm needs to be um, very specific in the way we go about it. And so um, that's, that's typically where I'm at right now. Um, I'm still working in my day job. So we still, you know, I still deal with that day in and day out, but then on the side, that's where I'm working with business owners. So. Right. From the outside, what I'm thinking is that, okay, you'll be using one software and all the details, all the financial details will be automated. So you could just like we have the bank statement, you could see that, okay, what all purchases, what money went in, what money went out, and these reports are being generated automatically. Is that how? Is that not how it happens? 
yeah, there's there's a lot of reports that are generated automatically. And it honestly is pulling information that's automatically generated, but pulling it into an area that you can now see it all in one place. So you may think, oh, I see he's talking about like cash, like in the bank account, right? Well, cash in the bank account is a good metric to look at, but cash in the bank account doesn't tell you how much accounts receivable you have, which is, you know, customer payments you're waiting on or how much accounts payable you have, which is money that you've got to pay out. So if you've got 250,000 in the bank of check, or sorry, if you got 250,000 in the bank account, but you have, you know, more than that in accounts payable, well, you're in a really bad cash position and you're having to make decisions about where to, to pull the money from or uh, what bills to pay or those sort of things. Um, but then you go even more advanced in uh, talking about uh, different metrics, sales metrics, you know, all sorts of metrics. So small businesses, especially don't have enough automation to get all of those in one place. And so it still is a manual process in a lot of cases, um, but because you're having to pull it from multiple systems. And so I, tr I love automation. Um, I'm really disappointed in the accounting tools automation at this point. Um, there's a lot of really bad tools out there and uh, they think they solve a problem, but they don't. Um, and so that also makes it harder on, you know, either departments or individuals or business owners to really get that down. And so filling that need for a small business is, is just helping them zoom out, which is really, really hard to do as well. So. Right. That makes sense. I believe that accounting is definitely something that people don't want to look at, but still, is there any good accounting software that you love or that at least let's say 90% solves the problem? Yeah. Well, so the most, the most common one out there is, is QuickBooks, right? Everyone has heard of QuickBooks. QuickBooks does decent, but honestly, I've had the best success with industry specific softwares because industry specific softwares are going to help you get the numbers that you need because a business that's selling a widget, if you're selling this widget over here, you're going to need certain types of reporting. You're going to need inventory reporting, tracking, you know, uh, cost of goods sold type stuff. Whereas if you're in a service-based business, you're going to need a lot different metrics. And so I like industry specific software because it gets you closer to the reporting needs that you have. Um, but then most of the, most of the time you're still having to try and integrate other solutions in. And so a lot of these companies are using industry specific software, but then they're still using QuickBooks for their accounting needs. And so, um, I would honestly like a dream of mine years down the road is to figure out a way to solve that problem, to really create automation. That's just plug and play for business owners. Um, because there's just, there's just not a lot of great stuff that's out there right now. That makes sense. Uh, just a few months ago, I was actually working with one company, which is a neobank and neobank specifically for e-commerce founders. So neobank specifically for uh, Shopify stores, specifically for Amazon sellers. And I was thinking like, why do we need a specific uh, neobank? But now it makes sense that, yeah, like if you could provide very specific details in, that are industry specific, that just makes the work way more easier because now you don't have to pull in different tools. You don't have to build that automation on your own. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, Let's talk about this particular aspect of living with intention. I believe, I believe that was the biggest reason why I reached out to you because it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to figure that out. Like, okay, how do you make good decisions? How do you live with intention? So let's talk more about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of go back because I've, it honestly goes back to what do I want to do with my life, right? Because when you ask these big questions, you, you really don't. Yeah, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, what is the meaning of life? And and honestly, like those questions get a bad rap and, you know, people, you know, turn it into all sorts of stuff. Uh, but 
what I realized is I spent the first five years plus out of school and I looked back and I said, I don't know what happened during that five years. Like, okay, I played on some sports teams with some friends, but otherwise, what did I do? Like I went on one or two trips, but that means the rest of that time is just gone. Like, I don't remember what I was doing during that time. And it's because I was going home, I was watching TV, I was vegging on the couch in the evenings, I was eating out, I was you know, going to work out. I wasn't doing anything because I meant to do it. I was just doing what was in front of me at the time. So, you know, that was at this point, that was, you know, over 15 years ago, I really started wrestling with that idea, you know, at that point. And initially it was, well, I just want to do interesting things. Right. And so I went on a few trips. I did, you know, a few different things. Um, I started trying to run and, and I'd never been a runner and I'd always been slow growing up. I'd never tried to run before I hated running. But I just said, you know what, I'm going to force myself to do this, you know, because I want to be able to go out there and accomplish something. And so it started with just kind of those experiments. Um, and then it just has kind of turned into this, um, in some ways, like constant reminder that I give myself that I want to make decisions because I meant to make them, because I chose to make them, not because I passively made them. And um, that goes anything from work to personal to fun, you know, to whatever, to whatever that looks like. And so that's honestly just how I framed my life in general over the last 15 years is, is I've thought about it in those terms and I can dig into a little bit what that looks like for me. Um, but that's kind of the overview of, I guess, where that came from. That's very interesting. And we'd love to know more, but I also want to share something. So I was yesterday, I was listening to a podcast and on that podcast, basically, it's, it's a tangent on what I'm going to talk about, but it's basically about a book that this particular person read and it's called Storyworthy. What is Storyworthy? Storyworthy basically breaks down what is storytelling and it breaks down how to tell a good story. And there was a really interesting concept that the author writes about. He basically mentions that you think about Jurassic Park, the movie that Spielberg made, and you think about that the entire movie is about dinosaurs. But no, the movie is not about dinosaurs. The movie is about a guy who doesn't want children and the girl uh, who wants children. And at the end of the movie, the guy realizes that, okay, he wants children. Uh, so the movie is all about that. Like he coming to the decision that, okay, he wants children. Uh, and dinosaur is just the sort of what brings you to the movie. That's it. But the story is not about that. And then he also like, you know, uh, talks about this uh, thing that a good story, a good movie always is about an absolute change. So whatever you see at the, first in the first 10 minutes of a movie think about that the the movie is going to end in an absolute different uh direction so he's like you know he was watching a movie with his daughter and the movie's like about a dog uh sitting in a, a pet house and looking through at people i forgot what movie he's referring to but this is how it started and he's like all right i know how this movie's going to end the movie's going to end by this dog finding a family finding a home for himself and that's exactly how it happened without him knowing the entire story so it was very interesting how he mentioned that uh and that's where he mentions that okay this is his uh, particular background about the uh, story. But then I looked around and I was like, wait, this guy's super interesting. Let me learn more about this. So I went on TED Talk and he has a TED Talk called Homework for Life. And what he basically mentioned in the TED Talk is how to become good at telling stories every single day, sit down and write that, okay, what was the story worthy moment for, of the day? Mm. And that's how you're going to actually remember your days. But without doing that, you're just going to feel like, wait, the time passed so fast. I have no idea what happened. But when you actually sit down every single day and write that thing that, okay, today I cooked a new dish for myself, you're going to remember that. So yeah, I just want to mention that. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that is a cool concept of writing the story of your day. I've actually, I'm meaning to read that book. I, I've heard about it a few years ago and put it on my list and then forgot about it. And it popped back up in the last couple of weeks. And so I'm, I'm going to be reading it here pretty quick. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, it's definitely cool. I believe... Right now, when you think about a lot of books, most books are, let's say, 
uh, a very basic concept that has been like you know just stretched out across 180 pages but then when i read about something really cool like he mentions about jurassic park i thought that's super interesting and this is an interesting guy to learn more from yeah for sure for sure yeah now all right so i believe you also talked a lot about increase your content consumption in one of your blog posts so mm -hmm. You mentioned about this interesting thing that consumption is good for consumption's sake, but consumption as a procrastination tool is bad. And that's very interesting because in, especially in my age uh, where you are trying to find that job, it becomes very interesting where you don't have to spend a lot of time doing certifications, trying to get new, just get new online courses under your belt, but more about that, okay, write that cold email, get that job, do that interview, stuff like that. So what's your perspective around this content consumption? Yeah. So this actually came out of, I kept seeing people um, on Twitter and other social media, hate on books, on just reading books for book's sake or, or whatever. And they kept saying, you know, very out there statements of like, you know, basically, I, I don't want to, I don't know what your, you know, uh, how do I say this? Take on books. Yeah, no, 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 sorry. The, basically they were saying that if you were reading books for no purpose, that it was the same as, um, mental masturbation, like, you know, that you okay. were just doing it, you know, so I was trying to think of how to say that in a better way. I couldn't think of that. So <laughs> we'll say it. I wasn't sure what your, uh, if you have a filter on here as far as explicit. No, stuff. so it's surely fine. Good deal. So I kept seeing these takes and it really kind of took on and it kind of just, I didn't like it. And there's a few reasons I didn't like it. Uh, I have for over 10 years now, I've averaged reading between 50 and 60 books a year. And there were parts of that time that there was procrastination, but the majority of that reading was things that I was just interested in, right? I didn't know how I was gonna apply it at the moment, but they were concepts that I was interested in. But now over the last year that I've started to create content, I've actually been able to revisit a number of these books because I thought, huh, I, there's an idea that I think I remember from this and I was able to pull it out and I realized that concepts that I'd internalized, that I didn't even realize I'd internalized, came from specific books along that journey. And so I spent that whole 10 years just learning, you know, just trying to learn new concepts because I had a curiosity for learning. And when you say that you should only consume for a very specific purpose, what you're saying is you shouldn't flex your, cons your consumption muscle until you need something. Well, that's such really bad habits. Like we already have those bad habits. All you're doing is continuing and making those bad habits worse. So consuming content, what it allowed me to do is it allowed me to become really good at consuming content. So now if I have something that I want to write about now, if I have something that I want to learn, I know how to do it. Like it's easy. I can read three books in a week, no problem. And I can be, you know, all up on what I want to know on that one topic. And so I can move quicker than other people can move because of that content consumption. And so it's twofold in that you're building a muscle, you're, you're building a habit. But then the second piece of that is you may not even know what you like until you've done a lot of consumption. And so that consumption shaped what I enjoyed. I read a book called Content Inc. back four or five years ago, and it's a really good book. I had no intent of creating anything at that point. But I just thought it sounded interesting because I thought, well, this is the future of what the world is going to look like from a content perspective. I'm kind of interested to learn about that. And so I learned, I did that, I read that book and then I reread it over the last two weeks and I had implemented almost every single thing from that book without even realizing it. I had implemented the systems that he talked about without realizing it. Now, 
All of those probably didn't come from him. I probably got them from elsewhere too, because it, not all of it's completely unique. But the reality is, is I was exposed to these ideas five years ago, and there's no way that that didn't impact my thinking a year ago when I started my content creation journey. And so that's why I'm so passionate about it. And I think it's just people's excuse to not have to consume, to be able to be lazy about their consumption. And and it's it's them honestly being a little envious, I think, of people that do consume more content than them. It's not doesn't make you great to consume content, but people do look at it when you can take in a lot of content, when you can do a lot of research. They do look at that and they say, oh, that's really cool, you know? And so I don't think it makes anyone greater than anyone else, but I do think there's a little bit of that that as well. So uh, you can get me going on that a little bit because I think uh, I think it's it's coming from the wrong perspective. So hmm. it's interesting because yeah, like whenever you have to create, you have to consume. If you if you are willing to create, then you have to consume because what are you going to talk about? Like yeah, you can talk one or two days, maybe one or two weeks about it, but after that, you will run out of ideas. And what content consumption helps me do is just connecting those dots. Like recently, a very interesting thing happened. Uh, I way back, like I believe two or three months ago, I read this or I listened, I was listening to this podcast called How to Take Over the World. And the podcaster, he was talking about Polgar sisters. Are you aware of Polgar? I uh, didn't ring a bell. No. Okay. So it's basically a guy who was a behavioral scientist and he was researching about how to, how to create genius. And then in order to prove his entire theory, what he does is he marries a lady and he has three daughters with her. And he is now thinking about that. Okay. I want to make my daughters genius. Now, what should I make them genius in? And that's where he's like, okay, maths is an op option. Mathematics is an option. But mathematics is very peer-reviewed. You cannot clearly state that, okay, you are a great mathematician. There is no ranking system. Uh, it's very peer-reviewed. And sometimes people are not respected enough. Uh, they're only respected years later or years down the road when they think that, oh, this particular theorem now makes sense or it's finally an application. But he thought that, wait, chess, it's a great sport. Uh, you can clearly right after math say that, okay, this person won, this person lost. So he was like, all right, let me teach my daughters how to be a chess grandmasters. And he did. Uh, at 14, 16, 18, uh, respectively, uh, his yeah. daughters became chess grandmasters. One of them actually beat uh, Gary Kasparov. He was really uh, mad about it. Uh, but yeah, he finally did what he wanted to do. And that's when I thought that, wait, that's chess versus maths. And then what I, in my last internship or in my last job I was doing is product management versus sales. And I was able to connect that, wait, product management is similar to maths, where it's very fluffy. You cannot clearly say that, okay, you are a good product manager, but sales and chess are similar. At the end of the day, you can say that, okay, you close the deal and you won that chess match. So it's, it's just like that. Like I'm able to make these, I'm able to connect these dots and that just makes me feel like, okay, I want to consume more because now I can make even more dots or connect even more dots. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point too, because it's in those, the reality is, is no idea is unique, right? I think we've probably heard that. And I, I 100% agree about that. But it's the connections that you can make from your personal lived experience and the content you consume that is unique. And you can put a unique spin on it because your perspective is completely unique to what anyone else would have. And so, yeah, I, I love that. I love that example. And I, now that you said that, I do remember hearing the story about those sisters. Um, and it's, it's an interesting story too, because there was, you know, there wasn't, uh, necessarily fulfillment for them in that, you know, if I'm remembering this, this, that mm -hmm. side of the story, right. Is, right. is there weren't necessarily great outcomes with them. Um, I don't remember the exact details, but I just remember, um, that despite having all that success there, there was not the joy in that for them in that pursuit. So actually it's very interesting, right? So I love this. Like whenever I watch a good documentary on Netflix or something like that, a biopic, I would actually go down that rabbit hole of reading Wikipedia, watching what's happening now stuff like that. And I was actually watching, what are these sisters doing now? Uh, they they 
became grand ma- grandmasters as a teenagers what are they doing now are they still mm-hmm. pursuing chess what's happening and most of them they have left ch- chess one sister she is now she's now an instructor of chess she's not playing anymore and they and they also the interviewer actually asked them that hey do you want to put your kids through the same thing what your dad put you through and they're like no we don't agree to that we don't want our we don't want our kids to uh, like you know revolve their entire life around chess so it's very interesting how uh, they how they perceive it you know, going through that experience yeah for sure for sure I actually want to know more about the book you mentioned. So you read a book and you were able to apply all that takeaways from that book. What was the book and what did you apply in your life? Well, that that specific book I was talking about was Content Inc. And that's specifically related to content creation. And so he has a basically nine-part framework of, in theory, behind ta- content creation that Today, it's not, and we see this even more. He probably wrote this 10 years ago, maybe a little bit, uh, maybe not quite that old, but uh, basically that everyone should be building a content engine because that content engine is what ultimately we're going to be selling in the future. Sure, there's going to be products. Sure, there's going to be other services, but your ability to create content is what's going to drive that because as people get desensitized to advertisements, what it comes down to is the connections that you can make with people And when you can go a different content angle, it kind of goes back to what we just talked about. You've got a unique spin and a unique angle. So if you can really niche down, you can reach those people and you can create a content engine, which will then create um, cash flow and create a business that's sustainable. And so that's his theory behind it. Um, And so when he walks through kind of nine steps in the process and, um, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a really interesting process that he walks through. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to pull it up. I have a note notes on it, but um, what the nine steps are, but um, it kind of goes from introduction to the, the things that you implement along the way to ultimately getting to where you're either selling the business or generating cash flow off the business. And then um, what your next steps are at that point. So. Interesting. I don't know, for some reason, after listening to you, I'm motivated to write my own book. Uh, for some reason, I want to do my own book. And I'm not thinking about that. Okay, what should I write about? But anyways, uh, you also love frameworks, you have renamed your podcast to finance and or frameworks and finance. Is it framework, frameworks on finance or finance or frameworks? Yeah, it's frameworks and finance. And uh, that was intentional to put those frameworks first is because I was worried right. if I did, if I did finance and frameworks, that people would think all the frameworks were going to be related to financial concepts. Mm. And I wanted to be very clear that frameworks are related to life, to business, to all other aspects of life. Sure, there can be overlap to financial concepts. Um, and there's I can absolutely just being an accountant and and dealing with numbers as long as I have and doing the personal finance stuff, I could probably tie every single thing to finance. But um, I wanted to make that very clear that, that they were two separate concepts. Um, And so, yeah, I've, I've been, I just love taking in different frameworks and uh, thinking about things in that, um, in that sense, because as you build out those frameworks in your life, um, as you build out the rhythms of your life, uh, you are uh, able to take things that are good habits and you're able to make them less of a decision every single day. And so that still goes back in a little ways to the intentional living, because mm. if you can take some of the hard decisions that you have to make that you know you want to repeat and you can make them a habit based off of frameworks that you've put into your life or, or decision frameworks that you've put in, then you can focus on the things that are actually more, more important than those things. And you, it's almost a scale of just gradually focusing on the next most important thing as you kind of automate and kind of create rhythms of the other 
ideas in your life. Right. And you talk about some really good frameworks. I love frameworks. Uh, I love to think in terms of analogies and frameworks. The last one you mentioned was the waterline principle. And I thought that was super cool. A super cool way to just reshape how you think about taking risk. And I will let you uh, describe what a waterline principle is, but also would love to know what are your, some of the other uh, top frameworks, your favorite frameworks. Yeah. So the waterline principle is that was actually new to me when I uh, heard of it. I was doing some research on Jeff Bezos and I came across this. And so the waterline principle says that as we go about within a business, or you can even apply it to life, as you go about making a decision, you need to be careful when you are punching holes below the waterline and uh, move quickly when you're punching holes above the waterline. So it's taking this idea of a ship you know, on the sea and you have the waterline on the ship and it's floating. Well, if you start punching holes below the waterline, you're going to have water just going into the ship. And it's just going to be a matter of time before that sinks the ship or before you patch that hole. And so what, what can happen is people sit in this framework of let's just move fast and break things. Well, then they start punching holes below the waterline and now the whole company's falling apart and they're thinking, oh, what happened? Well, they incorrectly attribute that to what was because we said move fast and break things. Well, no, that's not what it was. It's because you said move fast and break things no matter what, and you didn't put any structure into place. And so the idea is, is that when things are below the waterline, when things are um, very important to the business, could have a big impact on the bottom line, a big impact on people, whatever that looks like for your business, that you put some guardrails in place to bring other people into those decisions, um, create some processes or create a framework around that to say, this is the way we're gonna approach these types of decisions. And so you take those a little bit more carefully. Uh, the example that I use that I saw from Jeff Bezos was you don't want to use this move fast and break things when building a fulfillment center, right? Because if you do that, you've got plans, you've got everything else. Well, if you don't have a plan and you're building a building, that building is not gonna pass code. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's a huge mistake if you don't follow a good procedure. Uh, but if you're in research and development, steps slow you down and mean mm. that you're not going to be able to try and do as many things. And so uh, that's what you see a lot of big companies do is they put constraints on their research and development, and then they wonder why these other companies are passing them. And so I really loved it because it's applicable in so many different ways in so many different departments. You can literally, again, you can go down different departments in a company and you can apply that waterline principle in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I absolutely love this because, yeah, like it's a better twist or it's a better uh, way to phrase or think about the move fast, break things principle, because that just doesn't mean you will play with the stability of an app, because if the app crashes, people lose trust. Also, one more thing with what you mentioned is that recently I was listening to Sundar Pichai, uh, CEO of Google. He basically mentioned in an interview that we, reform, we reward efforts, not outcomes. And I thought that was super yeah. cool because if you just keep on rewarding outcomes that, okay, this person did it and that 10x a result, that means that everybody's now motivated to get results, which means they'll only play the safer bets. They will not experiment. And by rewarding efforts, you are also rewarding uh, bets that are more experimental, but they might not have turned out or might not have gotten the result that we wanted. So I thought that that was also a really cool one. Yeah. Well, even even apply that to your personal life as well, right? If, if we yeah. focus on outcomes and we set all of our goals based off of outcomes and we never go back to the effort required, we're just going to be disappointed. But so, so that's what I do when I set my goals is I set a goal that's out there. I'll set a year, a one-year goal and a five-year goal. And 
the goals are based off of outcomes because honestly, I don't know how else to set a goal. But then I back that up into what I'm going to do each week. And I make sure that I'm fulfilling that effort. If I'm fulfilling that effort and I track that I fulfill that effort, then I can't be mad that I didn't achieve that goal. That means I made that goal based off wrong assumptions of what effort was taken or needed. And so I can now reframe that goal or redo that goal based off the information that I now know. And so I look at goals as something that are just fluid, right? Because the reality is, is the goal is to get you started going in your direction. And then as you learn more information, let's recreate that goal with the new information and not be stuck on that old version of that goal. And um, so, yeah, that, that's so powerful when you think about that in your personal life. Um, and, and it's honestly something that, that I don't know that I internalized until a couple of years ago. And as I've internalized that, um, it's been amazing to see how that's changed uh, just the way I talk to myself, you know? Right. Totally. I believe that you also have this in your cover photo that action brings clarity. Uh, mm -hmm. I read a similar thing, which basically says inaction is slow death. And I believe these are two really cool ones that just makes you think that, okay, Stop planning, stop thinking, stop overthinking, just take action. And that's the best way to go about it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Right. Uh, is there any other framework that is like on your top of the list, which you absolutely love, which sort of blew, blew your mind when you heard for the first time? From um, Alex Ramosi. And he talks about um, the level seven entrepreneur. And so within that, he talks about kind of the four different um stages of the the business are kind of four different frameworks to talk about scaling and leverage. So it talks about scaling the entrepreneur, scaling the market, um, and then scaling deliver the deliverable, and then scaling the business. And that you can't get to the next level without the first level, like without the level in front of it. So first, you've got to scale yourself. And so it's thinking in this linear fashion of I've got to start here first before I can move on, because I think what people do is they think I have this startup idea. I have this really cool thing. I'm going to go pitch it to people. I'm going to go put it out there. But they've not done the work themselves to make sure that they're the person that can actually implement and do that specific uh, deliverable to do that specific company. And I see that so often as people get so excited about this one thing that they just jump all the way in and they don't reflect on what skills do I need before I can go to this next level. And then they think their failures are, well, it's just because of, you know, these people aren't listening or they think they, they ex put those failures on external things because they've not done that, that internal work. And so when I look at myself, I think, how can I scale myself first? How can I work on this first before I go to that next level of, of scaling the next thing in life? And so I, wrote about that a little bit, but I haven't really framed that out because I want to I want to kind of put my own spin on some of that. But that was one that I really, really liked uh, the approach that he took to that and the framing that it gave you to really reflect internally on yourself. That's interesting. I yeah, I'm absolutely loving the framework conversation. Uh, do you have another one? Yeah, let me. Um, so this isn't necessarily a framework, but it's a uh, uh, it's this idea. And I, I think I actually mentioned it earlier. Um, so people talk about uh, habits, they talk about routines, they talk about, um, you know, just the things that you do day in day life, they talk about your morning routine, they talk about the habits that you develop. All of those things, when you think about, you're thinking about the effort that's required of those things, right? So habits, 
have this feeling of being very hard. Routines have this feeling, honestly, of like being a little bit boring. And words, words mean a lot. And I actually got this, I'm a Christian, and I actually got this word from some stuff I was listening to talking about like the rhythms of your life. And so I like the idea and the concept behind creating rhythms of your life, because if you think about it, we have ebbs and flows of energy up and down, up and down, up and down. And so what we tend to do is we tend to base everything off of our highest energy levels. We think because I got this done one time, I can do this all the time. But if we think in rhythms, we have to think in the ebbs and flows of what's going on in our lives. And so uh, I really am trying to put together something around this idea of rhythms, because I think this idea of rhythms helps reframe and it helps give you a little bit of a break. But then it helps you realize that when I'm in that upper rhythm, I've really got to push. I've really got to make the most of that rhythm. And so I like the way that that really captures just the flow that we have within our life. Um, and, and again, it's not necessarily a frame set. But it's a reframing of a mindset of of the way that we go about certain things. So. That's interesting. So we are mainly talking about here. We are talking here about flow. Mm -hmm. But how yeah. do you reach that flow where you have the right amount of challenge, you have the right amount of skill that you can go about it? Uh, I believe someone really talked about someone talked about a really good concept over here. So I recently had a person who was building into metaverse into Web three, and someone asked him a question that. Why do you think Zuckerberg is still keeping at it? He's still going after building Facebook. Now he is super successful. Facebook is huge. But why do you think he's still going after it? And he's like, because he needs that flow. And he is doing this metaverse thing because he needs that new level of uh, challenge now. He had already accomplished the first part of challenge, which was how do we make Facebook or how do we get every single person on board on Facebook? How do we connect the world? And now the next thing is solving this metaverse problem. So now he has upped his challenge and now he's, that's his flow. So... That's that's again a super interesting way to think about it. Well, yeah, I like I love that because it it again it takes into account we do need to challenge ourselves, we do need to to go to the next level, but we also need like if you're putting together a routine that is a really intense ten step routine, but you've got rhythms in your life, whether it's responsibilities that you have or things that are going on in your life that don't allow you to keep that up, it can look as a failure. So what you need to do is you need to make your routines or you need to make your habits match the rhythms of your life. And so it completely kind of reframes the way, um, the way that we think about that because uh, we can compare to outside all the time and we can look and say, well, this guy's doing this, but I'm not able to. And we can beat ourselves up over that or we can compare and get arrogant about what we're doing and then, and then fall off. But if we're focused on our rhythm, if we focus on our energy, I love the use of the word flow. If we focus on our flow, then we're going to create a more sustainable life because it's honestly the crashes and burns that set us back the most, right? It's when we just push and push and push and then we crash and burn. You're not going to make it as far as the person that's being consistent. And so that, that rhythm, that flow is going to lead to consistency as well. Definitely. That's the way to think about it. Consistency is the game. Uh, yeah. Especially with my content, I believe that yes, consistency is how you grow and content is forcing me to be more consistent with everything. And yeah, uh, like content has made me become more consistent with my gym routine, with my studying, with other stuff that I'm doing. So I believe like it's, yeah, basically consistency is the game. Now let's talk about this. So I actually want to dive into your podcast journey. So why did you, I want to know, why did you start your podcast and what have you learned about podcasting along the way? Because now you have done around 50 episodes, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what have episodes. you learned about it? Okay. So I started on the podcast uh, because I realized that I was struggling with my publishing of a blog post of kind of keystone content. And so 
with a podcast, I could set a schedule and I had to record. The reality is you don't have to plan. Now you should plan. You should have some sort of framework that you use, right? You should have, uh, have a plan before you start, but you can force yourself to publish, to just kind of talk through a concept. And so I also had some previous experience, me and a friend had done an online radio show. It was just kind of goofy little college kid thing where we were talking about sports and we were doing all these random things. And so I had actually talked before on that medium. So it had less of an intimidation factor than mm -hmm. the other. And I knew that I needed to force myself to publish. So I said, well, this is the least intimidating thing for me. So this is the direction I'm going to go. And little did I know all the things that go into a podcast, uh, because, you know, there's setting up of the podcast, figuring out where you're going to host the podcast. There's the website, but then there's also like the audio quality and all that of a podcast. And so when I started the podcast, uh, I was talking about personal finance, uh, in relation to books. Uh, but I've now switched that more into professional, um, and personal, um, because honestly it just goes to like. I'll probably make another pivot at some point because I want to do something that I enjoy. And so I just realized I wasn't enjoying that as much as I thought. So what I learned is honestly, no one really cares about these details that I was sitting here and stressing myself over um, at the very beginning. I was really focused on quality because I wanted to come across really well. Um, but people are just not as interested in that as you are. They are interested in what your content is and whether the content's good or not. Um, Another thing that I learned is people in your life generally won't really care either. You're going to get very few people in your life that are going to care about this. So, but you're going to get people outside of that who really love to learn from you and you're going to get those kind of raving fans. And I wasn't necessarily prepared for that, but it's been fun kind of, kind of going through that process. So it's been a learning process, but honestly, it's just been a lot of fun because I enjoy, maybe as you can tell on this, I enjoy talking a little bit too much. Sometime I enjoy giving my opinion on things. Um, and, but honestly, the biggest benefit is it has forced me to publish in all these different ways because I started with the podcast, but then that resulted in me writing more. And now I've really fallen in love with that writing process again. And so it kind of goes back to that idea of starting provided me the clarity of where I'm going now. And it's as I continue to push forward, um, it's grown me in so many ways, personally and professionally, because I pushed, you have to push yourself when you make that commitment and you want to stick to that commitment, you want to live up to those people. Uh, it just becomes a lot of fun. Um, sure. It can be burdensome sometime, but um, I honestly couldn't imagine doing anything else now. And um, I'm, I, I'm assuming with at the rate that you're going at, you feel the same way. Cause if you didn't enjoy this, then you wouldn't be publishing at the rate that you're publishing. So. Definitely. That's the thing. So what, the biggest reason why I started the podcast was just be before podcast, when COVID happened, I went, I went back to India. I was stuck in my room. Uh, I focused really on writing because that is something I used to do a lot. But I found that, wait, already I'm super lonely over here, stuck in my room. I cannot go out. I cannot meet my friends. And on top of that, I'm spending three to four hours just researching, uh, aside from my full-time job. And this is getting super lonely now. So podcast was just a way to collaborate with more people and actually have conversations and have, why not have an intellectual conversation if you cannot have any conversation then? So it was just a better way to meet more people. And now the way the podcast is turning into, I'm just getting to talk with better people and I'm learning everything from them. So I think it's just super cool. So right now, right after listening to this podcast, I'll, I have this internal thing to do two things. Number one is maybe write my own book and number two, go and run after this, right after this podcast. <laughs> so maybe I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. it's great. That's the best thing. And I want to know, like, why did you choose to rename the podcast? Well, it was called delve into money, right? 
Yes. So when I started the content creation journey, I was focused on personal finance. Um, and I was a little bit scared to jump into the business world just because I, you know, you, I just had that little insecurity of, is my experience good enough? You know, I've helped mm -hmm. these small businesses and I see all these other creators out there and they're in these businesses that are a lot bigger. What you fail to realize when you're not on social, which I wasn't really on social before it is there's people just like me, CEOs that are just like my business owners that are on, you know, social as well, that are in all the channels. And so when I realized that that was probably around December, um, I really shifted my Twitter presence and shifted my newsletter um, to be more business finance focused and more frameworks focused. And it was from that, that it just made sense to shift the podcast in that same direction as well. The podcast is going to be focused more on personal pursuits than business pursuits. But the reality is a CEO or a business owner that's uh, trying to grow their business needs both sides of the equation. And so uh, I also realized that I'm borrowing other people's credibility when I'm framing my podcast in, in context of books that I'm reading. And so uh, I've learned enough and I have enough of my own frameworks that I decided, you know what, I want to be using my own credibility and I want to be working out my own ideas versus other people's ideas. Interesting. Now I have one question. So when you think about content, there are two types of content. Number one, also, I have been writing a lot for over two years now or two to three years now, and I have come up with some ways how I think about it. So one is that there are only two types of content. Number one is evergreen content, where you talk about these frameworks, these insights. And number two is news or stories. Mm -hmm. So what do you try to lean towards? Do you lean towards stories, news, or do you try to lean towards uh, evergreen content? And how did you yeah. choose that? I lean towards evergreen, uh, but honestly, it's not because of anything other than I used to be a huge news addict mm. and I've had to just stop. I've stopped taking in almost all news um, and I, I intentionally avoid news. So honestly, that's the only reason that that's the content that I go towards. Uh, you know, I could give you a really, uh, you know, advanced, uh, you know, uh, reason and get really passionate about why that is, but it's just a personal reason of, I just prefer to not take in news at this point because I find it distracts me and it's really easy for it to affect my moods, to affect the direction I'm going. And I want to have control of the direction that I'm going. I want to have control of that stuff. And so I decided for me, it wasn't worth my time to, to really worry about that stuff. And so I lean towards evergreen. Um, and I like, I like taking in people that are publishing on a regular basis because you get to see the way they're thinking. But I also think there's something powerful to books and other things that are researched on a longer time frame as well. So I like to have that mix between books and then content creators that are that are just basically publishing as they think about ideas. Um, and so I think more in ideas versus the news versus what's going on in that realm. Right. Makes sense. I believe when you write about Evergreen, you are just learning about the fundamental stuff that makes you, that helps you make better decisions. On news side, the only problem is that when you are going after news and if people only follow you because you talk about the latest thing, that makes your work more difficult because you're constantly on that wheel now where you're running to write about the latest information and you'll be competing with everyone who's writing about the latest information, latest news. Yeah. But with Evergreen, you are not directly competing with anyone. If you have right. a good storytelling, you have a unique voice basically. Well, and and honestly, like, you know, there's, uh, there's a podcast I enjoy called animal spirits and they hit on, you know, the stock market and it's personal finance related. And I know I could never be as entertaining as those guys are. Right. And so I'm competing with people that they're, they're basing their idea off of their personality. I want my stuff to be based off of the ideas I'm bringing to the table. 
And that's not saying that's better or worse. It's just the way I think and the way my mind operates. And so that's a natural place for me to go. I think that makes sense. Uh, there's this really good YouTube channel called Colin and Samir, and they try to break down all the creators. And they also have this framework of personality-based creators versus idea-based creators. Um, and they talk about it, like, you know, how if you build your entire brand around a personality-based creator, you're really stuck into it. And we, because we as humans, we are constantly changing. Yeah, you when you start growing your YouTube career, you might have a certain personality that people uh, loved that that had more affinity, but you grow as a person. And when your personality changes, people then loses that affinity with you. So that was also very interesting. Yeah, like a, a good example is, um, I think it's H3, H3, there's H3. A, a YouTube yeah. channel. Yeah, I don't remember, but I've not really kept up a lot with them, but I've, I, I was reading something recently that was talking about how they've lost a lot of subscribers and it's because of the changes that them as a couple have made. And it's because they've been on the platform now for so many years that their personalities have changed. You can judge whether that's for good or bad, but people don't, don't like them now, right? People used to love them, but for whatever reason. And so that's a good example of, uh, I don't know what their shtick was cause I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't really watching a lot of their stuff, but it was very much based off their personality and outlook on life. And as that changed, now their subscriber count has suffered and I'm sure, you know, their monetization has suffered too. Definitely. All right. So Kurt is the last thing I want to talk about is cryptocurrency. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah. And are you investing? Are you buying something right now, especially when the prices are down? Yeah. So everyone loves to talk about crypto. I am, I, I love crypto. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, it needs to be less than 5% or it needs to be less than 3%. It needs to be a small section of your portfolio. Um, I personally uh, hold probably close to 10 to 15% of my net worth in there. Um, it was, it was more before, <laughs> you know, uh, but I think it's a fun space to play in. There's going to be a few big winners and we don't know what those winners are going to be. Um, so I like to stay heavy in kind of the Bitcoin Ethereum. And then I just put kind of some fun play money in some other ones. So I do like to keep up with it a little bit, but um, it's more as a general concept versus um, kind of in the weeds, you know, kind of NFTs, those types of projects. Um, but it's, it's entertaining, but it's another one of those rabbit holes that you can go down. And so I've tried to stay higher level, but I think as we move forward in the world, and we continue to go on a global track um, that there's a space for it. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I'm not going to try and make a prediction on what that's going to look like, but I believe that the blockchain technology is going to be something that's going to have a prominent place in our life in the future. And um, I'm excited to see what that ride looks like. So, and I'm absolutely putting more money in now as well. So definitely uh, actually another question. So you have built a massive following on Twitter. I'm curious, what sort of messages are you getting in your DMs? Uh, what sort of crazy requests are you getting on your DMs just because of this massive yeah, following? I don't get as many crazy requests as other people do, uh, but you get, you do get people that just immediately want to sell you something. And so I get people every, probably every second day that are like, hey, can we jump on a call? Can we jump on a call? And I'm like, if I jumped on every call that I had someone coming into my DMs for, I would totally not have any time left for anything else. Right. Um, so that's honestly, for me, been the biggest thing. Uh, but I'm lucky that I'm not more in the personal finance space now because I see those guys all the time getting all sorts of scams. The biggest, the biggest thing, honestly, though, the biggest frustration is the fake accounts that get created because 
then they start DMing people acting like they're you. And then that's really frustrating because it's, um, and so I've, I've not had too much of that, but I've known quite a few people, especially in the crypto space that have had that issue. And um, that becomes a nightmare because it's, it's, it's frustrating and it can hurt your reputation in a way. Um, and it's just a distraction. So definitely, I think that I did, is I will thing, say, yeah. sorry, sorry. I was gonna say, I did say, I did get a die in my DMs telling me that he would sell me my soul back. So I've, you know, having a negotiation with him. No, I'm joking. I'm not having a negotiation with him. But it was like one of the most off the wall DMs I've ever gotten. I was sitting there thinking, what? What did he just say? So it's pretty funny. Right. Nice. Uh, but yeah, Curtis, this was good. This was good. So we talked about personal finance, living with attention. We talked a lot about your, uh, your content consumption. We talked about podcasting. We talked about... Uh, what was the last thing we talked about? Cryptocurrency, yeah. So it was, yeah. it was a pretty cool conversation. A lot of thanks. This was good. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, for sure. It was a lot of fun to talk through these things with you. And um, I uh, look forward to kind of continuing our conversations in the future. So Perfect. And yeah, where can people find you? Yeah, I, the best place to find me is going to be on Twitter. Um, it's just, my name is Curtis Haney. So it's, and he'll put it in the show notes, but it's Curtis with a K, a little bit different. And then I have a website as well, curtishaney.com. Those are kind of the two best places that you're going to find me and, uh, subscribe to my newsletter on there. I try and, uh, release, uh, an article every week on a concept that I'm thinking about. And so, uh, have a lot of fun with that and I just love to hear from people. So don't hesitate to reach out. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks, bro.